seated. So Christian faith. By the way, did you get this handout, everybody? Okay, there's some on the back there. There's some in the back there. You might, you might want this. Um, you can fill it out as you go. Christian faith is this. Christian faith starts by looking outside of oneself to something greater than oneself. Would you agree? Not a trick question, okay. Christian faith starts by looking outside of oneself to something or someone greater than oneself. We then submit ourselves to that greater reality and draw on his power to begin the work of reforming ourselves into conformity with his will, which is ultimate reality. That's Christian faith in a nutshell. But we live in a world that doesn't by and large believe that. We live in a, a world that uh, has false religion in many forms, and the false religion of our day, I think, at least in the Western world, the false religion of our day is sort of a, uh, a self-help deism, kind of, kind of a, a, a wellness, um, sort of, I, I just, I want to be a whole person, and I want to know truth, but I don't really know where to get it. So here's what culture says. Here's what culture says faith is. The cult of modern Western thinking starts by looking inside oneself. So unlike Christian faith, it says, I'm going to look outside of myself for meaning, for reality, for truth, for morality. The world, the cult of the world that we live in right now in the West says, no, you look inside yourself because there is no thing greater than yourself. There's nowhere more true to find meaning and reality and truth and morality than in yourself. This is what the world's telling you. Have you noticed this? So if you're feeling like I'm missing something, you feel like I'm looking for something, the world will say, you need to look inside. You need to look inside because inside is ultimate reality. Inside is your truth. Inside is your sense of morality. Inside is who you truly are. The more inside you get, the more true you get. What, is the, what does the gospel say? The more inside you get, the more wrong you are. We got to get outside to ultimate reality where God is in his dimension and say, God, I need you to inform what truth is for me. And then as, instead of, uh, in the world, instead of being formed by God's thinking, we're formed by our thinking. And that's the deformation that the world is walking in every day. I want you guys to understand that we're thinking about faith right now. We're in this faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be talking about faith for the next few weeks. And this week's kind of a part two to last week. So you can always go back and listen to that. But I want you to understand something very important. The world, what they need is actually not faith. Okay, they, they have faith. It's not like when we evangelize, we share the gospel, we talk about Jesus. We're not trying to activate faith in someone. Everyone already has faith. It's not about getting them to have faith. What is it? It's reorienting the source or the object of their faith. Okay? Everyone is subscribed to some kind of a religion. Everyone is living their life based on a reality that they are believing or based on an idea of a reality they're believing. Everyone has faith. The question is, is the source of the faith real? 
And here's the problem with most faith options that we have in our culture. Most faith options are not faith in God, they're faith in our faith. And that's a problem. Can you imagine if you were rock climbing, okay, thousand feet off from the ground and you're, and you're, you're doing well and you have these anchor points and you're, and you're, and you're clipping out of these anchor points and, and then you, you realize at one point that you thought you were clipping to the mountain and somehow accidentally you just clipped your rope right back to your belt. That's having faith in your faith. That's exactly what our culture is doing. Our culture is saying, my truth is entirely based on the fact that I feel like it's true. So my rope is clipped to myself. And that's a problem. And this is nothing new. Uh, every, every one of us struggle with this, even as Christians. Uh, Peter really struggled with this, didn't he? He clipped his clip to his own belt all the time. Remember right before Jesus went to the cross and Jesus is trying to share this really important thing with them? He's like, hey guys, you're all going to flee. The, sheep, or the shepherd's going to be stricken and the sheep are going to flee. And, and Peter, who, who's feeling pretty good about himself at this point, he hasn't had that nice slice of humble pie that he has in a moment, right? He's feeling pretty good about Peter at this point. Faith, his faith is in what? It's in Peter. Peter's got great confidence in Peter. Peter's got a high estimation of Peter and Peter's faith. And so when Jesus says this, Peter, I just, Peter pipes up, but every time I say that, it sounds weird. Peter pipes up, because Peter Piper. Peter pipes up and he says, not me, Lord. I will never, to which Jesus says, oh, yes, you will. So what had to happen with Peter was Peter had to unclip his harness from himself and clip it to Christ. And the only way that happened was through failure. Peter had to biff it hard, right, hard, so that he could have this sort of reconvening with Jesus later and and, and Jesus could kind of go, okay, are you going to put your faith in me now? We can think that we have faith in Christ, but in fact, our faith can actually be in our faith. And Jesus was really trying to prepare his disciples for this temptation that they were going to have to not put their faith in the object of Christ, but rather to put their faith in their own faith. That's why in John chapter 15, Jesus said, listen, I'm the vine. You are the branches. Anyone that abides, in other words, anyone that's, anyone that's hanging on completely to me will bear fruit. Anyone who does not abide is what? A stick on the ground. Okay, Jesus was trying to illustrate a very simple reality, and that is if we are connected to him by faith, he's the source, he will produce life through us. But if we're not connected to him, we're just a stick on the ground. We're just a stick on the ground. The problem is we have a whole slew, a whole generation of people in our culture right now, and they have believed a lie that they are not a stick, they are not a branch, they are a vine. In you, in yourself, believe in yourself. You have life within yourself. You have truth within yourself. You have all reality within yourself. You just have to access it. No, you don't. You're not a vine. You're just a stick. Jesus was trying to communicate this to these guys. He was trying to get them to understand they did not need to have faith in themselves or in their own faith. They needed to have faith in him. Now, this matters to our passage. Uh, You'll you'll see sort of as we go on because the author of Hebrews is, is very focused on this subject of faith. And the reason is not because he's entirely worried about the quality or the quantity of the faith of the Hebrews, But rather, he's worried about the source. 
He's worried about the fact that perhaps these Hebrews have clipped their clip to their belt rather than to the hill, to the, to the wall, to the anchor. He's very concerned about this. These Jewish Christians uh, were drifting. They were drifting from the bedrock, the anchor of Christ, their high priest who had gone beyond the veil for them, and they were beginning to put their faith back into the old system of religion, Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews is writing pastorally to sort of wave his arms and say, don't do it. Just like Jesus with his disciples. Abide in the vine. Keep holding on. That's kind of the idea of the book. And this has a lot of relevance for us, even though we're not Jewish Christians. Most of us probably are not Jewish Christians. Tempted to go back to the old uh, sort of Judaistic system. It has relevance for us because we do drift, don't we? And we tend to anchor ourselves to other things other than Christ. And I think the number one temptation for us in our day is to anchor ourselves to ourself and to have too much confidence in our own ability to follow Jesus. What God's trying to do in all of us, he's trying to mature us past our faith being rooted in our faith into our faith being rooted in him, in him alone. And that's really the whole goal of the book of Hebrews. So let me kind of get you into the the context. Um, You guys know this if you attend here regularly. Um, The Bible, it does not break up into little verses, although it's been broken up into little verses. It actually comes in themes and it comes in larger literal sections or literary sections. So Hebrews is one big letter that was really meant to be read probably in one setting. And what we do sometimes in, in, in Bible study is we break it up into these little chunks and that's fine. But what we have to remember is that there's a bigger thought here. So really, the last, last week and the next five weeks, we're going to be in one literary unit, which is chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. It's all one big thought. And because it's one big thought, I want you guys to see that big thought, and then we'll double-click and zoom into our text for today. Does that make sense? So let me get you into the big thought. The big thought, as I've already said, is the Hebrews are drifting. They're holding loose Christ. They're drawing back from Christ, and the author is trying to get them to draw near to Christ to hold fast to Christ. And so at the end of chapter 10, if you remember, he says that they're in danger. Okay, they're in danger uh, of not enduring. Let's just look at it really quickly. The end of chapter 10, verse 39, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back. That's what they were doing. They were shrinking back and are destroyed. But rather, we are those who have faith. And that's the key word. And preserve their souls. So he's saying, you need to have the kind of faith that is going to bring perseverance, the kind of faith that forms an anchor that will hold you fast through any amount of storms or trials or struggles. He's saying, the kind of faith that you need to have is chapter 11, verse 1. Look at it. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we looked at that verse in detail last week. But essentially what the author is saying here is he's saying the kind of faith you need to have is not a wishful thinking kind of faith, like I hope maybe this happens, or, or I, I, I believe kind of. No, the kind of faith that Christians need to have is a confident, sure, steadfast, and absolute resolve. I believe this. I believe it. I'm absolutely convinced. And it is this being convinced that ultimately leads to the life of a believer because we're so convinced we change everything in our life. Okay, Uh, now, from this point, verse four and following, if you were to sit down and read the whole chapter right now, you would notice that the author just starts giving example after example after example after example in chapter 11 of people who lived lives of faith. We're gonna look at three of them today. We're gonna look at Abel, we're gonna look at Enoch, 
We're going to look at Noah. But if you keep reading, he's going to keep going. He's going to talk about Moses. He's going to talk about Abraham. He's going to, he's going to go through the, the, the biblical narrative, really starting at Genesis and moving his way all the way through the Old Testament in order to give illustration to what it looks like to actually live this life of faith, to live this life uh, of, of following God, taking him at his word and trusting him. So that's kind of what we're going to be doing uh, in the weeks to come. But before we dive right in, I need you to see the crescendo of this literary unit. Even though we're not going to be there for a few weeks, I need you to see it anyway. So just read ahead a little bit to chapter 12, verse 1. This is the point that we will be preaching for the next four weeks. The point is this, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now pause right there. After this long list of Old Testament saints who chose to follow God, the author transports us into a picture, and the picture is that of an Olympic race. And you, yes you, are an Olympic runner. And you're standing at the bottom of this Olympic stadium, and the stands are filled to the brim by this cloud of witnesses. Who are the cloud of witnesses? The cloud of witnesses are all of the individuals that he just talked about in chapter 11. Noah, Abraham, Enoch, etc. All of the people, all of the saints who were saved on future grace, who had faith that God was going to be faithful and Jesus died for those saints, they are in the stands as a witness, as a representation of what it looks like to run a faith race. And you, believer, you are in the middle of your race. You're in the middle of your race. That's, that's what you're doing. You're, you're not running a race to buy your salvation, are you? You're, you're not running a race to earn God's grace. No, you're running a race of faith. The race set before you as a believer is simple. It's faith. How do I live a life of faith? That's my race. Now, what is the imperative? The imperative is very simple. Run the race with endurance. Note it, that is set before you. Run the race that is set before you. There's a specificity to the race that's been set before you. And you are to run it like so many have run before you. Are you tracking with me? But the picture continues. Now, verse 2 is the key to the whole thing. Don't just run the race, but run the race that is set before you, verse 2, looking to yourself... False. <laughs> False. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Okay, I gotta stop right there. I don't want to overpreach this because I'm gonna be preaching this in three weeks. But but this is so cool. Looking to Jesus, how do we run the race? We look we, we run the race by looking to Jesus. Well, okay, why are we looking to Jesus? What did he do? Well, it says he was the founder and perfecter of our faith. That word founder, it's the Greek word archagos. It's one of my favorite Greek words. It can be translated pioneer, trailblazer. It can be translated captain, author. The idea that it bears within it is it's the first one to start something. 
the first person that will lead a procession of others to follow. Jesus is the pioneer of our faith, but there's actually, I think the ESV gets it wrong here. I'm not a Bible scholar, but I think the ESV gets the translation wrong here. NASV does it better. I don't think it should say Jesus, the pioneer of our faith. I actually think if you look at the Greek, it says Jesus, the pioneer, listen, Jesus, the pioneer of faith. Sam, what does that matter? Because it's a whole world of difference. Jesus isn't just perfecting our faith, although he is. Jesus perfected his own faith. Jesus ran his own race. He ran his own race. So he first ran the race of faith. You're saying, Sam, he's God. How is he? He, Jesus had to live his human life trusting the Father. He did it perfectly. He ran his perfect race. So, So Jesus, looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now don't lose me. What the author is saying here is he's saying, you're at the bottom, you're running your race, the stands are filled, look at all the people that have run it before you, and here's where your eyes should be. Your eyes should be not on your own pace, and not on your own time, and not on your own strength, and not on your own effort, and not on your own ability, but on the perfect one that ran before you, because guess what? He ran the race for you. And now all you need to do is take a victory lap in his victory. The life of the Christian is following in the footsteps of the one that already lived the perfect life. That's the faith race. Now, having said that, why did I bring you to that passage? A couple reasons. First of all, because it would be really easy to teach through Hebrews chapter 11 and look at all of these examples of all these Old Testament saints and just go, okay, I need to be like this guy and I need to be like this guy and I need to be like that guy. That's not the point. The point is, you need to get your eyes on Christ. He ran the perfect race for you and he has accredited it by faith into your account. The Christian life certainly has work in it, but the Christian life is mostly living in response to the victory of Jesus' race. He already ran the perfect race. He already endured the cross. He already despised the shame and he's given you his race time. He's given you his scorecard. That's the gospel. That's how we run. We run by keeping our eyes on the superior racer. It would be very easy to romanticize and idolize some of these Old Testament saints. And that's how most people teach the Old Testament. They say, be like David, slay your giants. Don't be like David. Be like Christ. David was a poor representation, a poor type of Christ. The point of Hebrews 11 is not to hold up the Old Testament saints. It is to get our attention on Christ. Amen? Okay. Having said that, now let's take a look at our text this morning. There are three profiles that we're going to look at this morning. Three faith racers, if you will, faith racers. And what I want you to see is I want you to see the different circumstances in which each of these faith racers ran their race. Because remember, remember what it said in verse 12, run the race that is set before you. Everyone has to run a different race of faith. Everyone has to. And so here we're going to look at three different races. And as we look at each three of these, we're going to see some, uh, some specificity about what faith looks like in each. So if you have your handout, I'll give you all three right up front. You can just write them in. First, we're going to see Abel. And we're going to see that faith means accepting the architecture. I'll explain, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. Faith means accepting the architecture. Number two, we're going to look at Enoch in verse uh, five and six. And that's faith means seeking the source. And number three, we're going to look at Noah 
And that is faith means doing the daily. Doing the daily. Okay, let's break those down one by one. Let's start in verse four. Start with Abel. Faith means accepting the architecture. And why architecture, what I mean is, is you, you gotta fill the space that God has created for you. You gotta live into the circumstances that God has put before you. That's, that's our job. Let's look at Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We're fairly familiar with Abel, probably, if you've been reading the Bible for some time. So the author, he's going to go chronologically uh, through the Bible, and he starts not only with um, really kind of a prehistorical figure, Abel, he starts with really the third man to ever live. You have Adam, you have Cain, and then you have Abel. And we're fairly familiar with this story. But what the author here is going to do for us is he's going to help us understand why it was that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's wasn't. Have you ever been reading the book of Genesis and you kind of wondered that? What's the deal with that? Why did God say, oh, nope, sorry, Cain, I'm good on what you got. Oh, Abel, thank you so much. Good job, attaboy. What, what's up with that? What did Cain do? I mean, what's the deal? Well, here we find out the reason why. The reason that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable wasn't because it was a, a sacrifice of blood. Some people have tried to, to, to make it that. Oh, see, uh, Abel's sacrifice was a sacrifice of blood, which was a type of Christ. That's actually not accurate. And the reason is because this sacrifice Cain and Abel brought to the Lord was not a sacrifice of atonement. It, wasn't, it was an offering of worship. And for some reason, Cain's was rejected and Abel's was accepted. The reason that we, we find out here, the reason that Abel's was accepted was because Abel's was done by what? Faith. Abel's was done by faith, and Cain's was not. See, Cain, and it's fairly obvious when you look at the narrative, Cain was bringing a sacrifice, clearly not because he was gushing with thanks and worship for God, but Cain was bringing a sacrifice because Cain wanted to get something from God. Say, Sam, how do you know that? Well, because he got really frustrated when God didn't give it to him. And that's what happens when we come to God with a legalistic approach. You know, legalism isn't just about buying righteousness. Legalism is about buying something from God. Hey, God, I'll give you my purity. Hey, God, I'll give you my righteousness. Hey, God, I'll get up and read my Bible in the morning. Hey, God, I'll wait for marriage. Hey, God, I'll go to church every day. Hey, God, I'll give you 10%. If you give me a perfect marriage and a perfect sex life and a perfect job and really health, wealth and prosperity, I'll do this stuff. You give me some other stuff and it's a perfect arrangement. That's a lot of what American Christianity is. It's contractual legalism. So Cain comes to God and he's like, hey, God, here's some fruit from my labor. Um, what are you going to give me back? And God says, nothing. I don't even like it. Don't like the color. Sorry. Yet here's Abel over here bringing God a gift that probably was equal in value perhaps. We don't know. For some reason, God says thank you. Why? The answer is simple. Abel brought a sacrifice not to buy God, but to praise God. Cain brought a sacrifice to try to control God. And we know that Cain's heart was not for the Lord because if it was for the Lord when God said, hey, no, I'm good on your sacrifice, Cain would have said, well, what do you want? I can bring something different. You don't like red? How about blue? 
You know, that's not what Cain does. Cain just gets angry, and his anger festers, and it leads to the first human manslaughter. Cain kills Abel out of jealousy, right? You know the story? So we learn here the importance of faith. We learn that God's not interested in our stuff. God's not interested in our work for the purpose of earning. God is not impressed with anything that we do or can give. God wants our faith. He wants our trust. He wants us to trust him. And he wants us to give back to him, not to buy him, but because we're thankful for him. You see the difference? It's very different. And, and I just, this is just a side note. I just really want, to, I want you to watch yourself for Cain-like behavior. Cain-like behavior looks like, God, I did all this stuff, and now my life is hard. I thought you were going to bless me. That's Cain-like behavior. God's like, wait a minute, I thought you did that stuff because you loved me not because you were trying to purchase me. That's a real problem. Now, there's something else I want you to see here regarding Abel. In fact, I think the author wants you to see about Abel. He not only brings up the acceptability of his sacrifice, he also brings up the brevity of Abel's life. Can you imagine being Abel? Like, you get to heaven and someone's like, oh, you're Abel. Yeah, man, you were a great two verses. Like, like, you're the guy that got killed. Oh, yeah, awesome. You know, I mean, wh- what a bummer. I mean, did you know that Abel's name literally comes from the Hebrew word hevel? Which might be familiar to you if you've ever studied the book of Ecclesiastes. It can be translated vanity, vapor, breath, fleeting, short. How'd you like that to be your name? Oh, yeah, your short story. Oh, yeah, you're, you're the brief guy. Yeah, your, your, your life was a blip. It was a vapor. That's Abel. He doesn't, I mean, I'm sure he had many things that he did in his life, but the only thing we know about him is he brought a sacrifice that was acceptable and then he was killed and then he was replaced by another son. So that's Abel's life. And the author of Hebrews really wants us to pay special attention to that. Notice, he says, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It's not just the brevity of Abel's life that we're meant to see, it's also the legacy of Abel's life that we're meant to see. Because even though Abel's life was brief, it still speaks today. We're here talking about it. Why are we here talking about it? We're here talking about it, listen, because the quality of your faith outlives the quantity of your faith. You hear me? The quality, you, you might do one thing that was really done out of faith, and it could have a bigger impact than doing a hundred things. Immediately in my mind, I thought about Abel and I thought about his little faith story and his faith testament. I thought about the thief on the cross. You know, I mean, the thief on the cross, he just didn't have a chance to do much of anything, did he? Except one thing, get saved. I mean, that was all he had time for. He gave his life to Christ and then he died. Abel brought this acceptable sacrifice and then he ultimately died. It was kind of short. Now, maybe you can relate in some way with Abel in this, in, in certain, certain senses. Maybe there's something about your life or your story that kind of resonates with Abel. Uh, how about this? Maybe like Abel, you feel like you did good and you were genuine and maybe you were and then you felt like at the end of the day, you suffered even though you did all the right things. That's, that's a reality that we all struggle with all the time. God, I, I've done good things, and those good things have caused me to have problems. You know why Abel died? He died for worshiping God authentically. How is that fair? Well, life is pain, highness, right? 
Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. All you Princess Bride fans. The reality is sometimes we do the right thing and we get a really bad outcome in this world, in this fallen, broken world. So maybe you can resonate with Abel. Maybe you can resonate with Abel in that you've been sinned against grievously. I mean, Abel was the first homicide. He was murdered by his brother. Maybe you can relate with with someone taking advantage of you even when you were doing the right thing. Maybe like Abel, you feel cut short. Like, man, I I thought I was going to do all this stuff for God. I had all these plans when I got saved. I was going to go to the mission field or I was going to, you know, do all of these things and now I have this chronic illness and all I can do is sit. Or, man, I was going to do all this stuff and now, you know, I just got diagnosed with cancer and I may not live another couple years. God, why would you cut me short like that? Isn't, Isn't faith meaning you want me to live a full life of obedience? Sometimes. Sometimes it's one acceptable sacrifice and God takes you home. Sometimes it's that simple. What I want you to see here is that we need to have, that faith means accepting the architecture, meaning faith means accepting what God has put before you because you are meant to run your race. And it's not about the quantity. It's not about how much did I do for God. It's about faithfulness. And I would just suggest to you, do yourself a favor. Don't set your little meter of whether or not you're doing enough on how much you're doing, set it on whether you're doing what God asked you to do. Because if you set it on how much you're doing, you're always gonna be struggling with condemnation. I'm not doing as much as that person. You're gonna be feeling pretty good and then you're gonna meet someone that's doing 10 times more stuff for the Lord and you're thinking, what's wrong with me? Nobody else has your life. Nobody else has your limitations. Nobody else has your physical struggles. Nobody else has your emotional and mental struggles. God's will providentially was that Abel would do something very faithful and then he would die. Was Abel any less able to glorify God? Didn't do that on purpose. That was an accident. No, he glorified God. It's the same reason that Paul says to the Corinthians when he's pleading the case for his apostleship, he says, I will boast in my weakness because it is when I am weak that Christ is made strong. Meaning when I'm the lowest, there's the most room for God's strength to fill me. God's glory and God's strength is most displayed in me when I am the weakest. So Paul says, bring on the weakness. Bring on the limitations because it's in weakness that God's strength can be seen more fully. So let's look now at Enoch. Number two, faith means seeking the source. Enoch comes in verse five. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. You know, one of the most interesting things about Enoch is how little we know about Enoch. Very little. There's a lot of books written about Enoch. Makes a lot of sense, right? Um, you know, there, there's very little about Enoch. We don't know. We don't know what he did. We don't know how much he did. We really don't know. We don't know much about him. You can go back and you can read it for yourself. Genesis chapter 5 says very little about him. Here's the two things that Enoch's known for. He's famous for two things, okay? The first one is what Enoch did with God. We'll talk about that first. And then what God did for Enoch. We'll talk about that second. First, what Enoch did with God. Genesis chapter five says it twice. It says Enoch walked with God. That's it. And then it says it again. Enoch walked with God. So what did Enoch do? He walked with God. That's all we know. 
Now you might be saying, if you're, if you're a critical thinker and you study this, you might say, well then why does the author of Hebrews here say that Enoch pleased God? Where did he get that? Well, actually, the Greek translation of the Old Testament changed the word walked to pleased. Isn't that interesting? So you could say Enoch walked with God. You could also say Enoch pleased God. And both of those things, according to the biblical authors, would mean the exact same thing. What does that tell us? Walking with God is pleasing to God. If you want to please God, walk with God. So what did Enoch do? Why did he make it into this list? You'll notice if you study the list, almost every single person in the list did something. Noah built a boat. Abel brought a sacrifice. Moses led Israel you know, out of Sinai. Okay, what did, it, what did Enoch do? He walked with God. He had a relationship with God. He knew God. That was his legacy. That was what he was known for. His legacy was walking with God. What a cool thing to be known for. Wouldn't that be great if you got to the end of your life and rather than someone saying, oh, they just did so much for God, they were just so productive. No, there's nothing, no, there's nothing wrong with that. But what if, what if rather than that said, like, man, that person walked with God. They pleased the Lord. They knew the Lord. They had relationship with the Lord. You know, you type A people need to hear that. Okay, there's two types of people in the world, type A people and everybody else. <laughs> like, type A people are like, no, God doesn't care about me talking and walking and hanging out. God just wants me to do stuff. That's why he saved me. He saved me because I'm so productive. And he needed a productive person, a person with a clipboard, okay? Because I get stuff done. Like, no, listen to me. You need a little Enoch in your life. Walk with God. Walk with him. It pleases God. You know, God was friends with Enoch. Just like God was friends with Abraham. They had this relationship, and God wanted Enoch with him now. He didn't want to wait. He said, come home. Isn't that cool? Now, we need to ask the question, what was it about the way Enoch walked that pleased the Lord? And the answer to that comes in verse 6 of our text. Verse 6 often gets quoted um, apart from verse 5, but it really belongs to verse 5, so they should stay together. So, without faith, it is impossible to please him. So how did Enoch please God? He had faith. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So what is the implication about Enoch? The implication is that Enoch, he he pleased God because he drew near to God and he sought God. He believed he existed. And he took him at his word. He actually believed in his promises. There's nothing you can do for God that will ever be more important to him than what you do with God. Okay? Now, God didn't save you because he was lonely. So it's not like, you know, it's not this kind of like uh, dualistic relationship where God's like, I need humans. No, that's, that's not the reality. But God does enjoy us. He's pleased when we talk to him, when we trust in him. He's a person. His relationship with us. And it's not to say that doing for God and knowing God are mutually exclusive. That's not true. But I will say this. The Bible has a lot more terrifying things to say for those that did things for God but never knew God than it does for those who knew God and never did anything for God. I'm referring to Jesus' comments to the people that came to him and said, look at the resume of all the things we did. He's like, I don't know you. Right? I don't know you. So Enoch walked 
with God. And there was, you know, there was very few Old Testament people that, were, uh, that had that kind of relationship with God in, in the Old Testament. very rare kind of a thing. But here's the really cool thing. Listen to me. The really cool thing is Jesus, who was God, second person of the Trinity, Jesus called his disciples, what? Friends. He said, you're not my servants. You're my friends. And by the Holy Spirit now who lives within us, resides within us, we all can have the kind of relationship that Enoch had with God. This is New Testament good news right there. Isn't that great? We can walk with God. Now, not, Enoch's famous not only for walking with God, but the second thing Enoch is famous for is what God did for Enoch, which is what? Took him home. Okay, God took him home. God took him straight to heaven. He got a, he got a get out of jail free card he even passed go. No, he didn't pass go on the way. Whatever. I don't even know what I'm talking about. He. <laughs> can we just rewind and like can we start over? So if we had a second service, I could fix that. <laughs> Enoch was known not just for what he did for God. He was actually more known for what God did for him. And I would suggest to you that that right there is the essence of what a Christian should be. That you are known, not just because you do stuff for God, but that you are known because you put on display what God has done for you. Enoch's life is a testament for us. It is a reminder for us of God's graciousness, of God's kindness. For me, Enoch is a reminder that the most important thing about me and my faith is not me or my faith. It's his faithfulness. That's, That's the point. That's the thing I need to hold on to. And you know, we need to remember that God blessed Enoch, not because Enoch deserved it, but listen to me, God likes to bless. He's a blessing God. He simply likes to bless. It pleased God to bless Enoch. It pleased him. That's so cool. So our text helpfully defines faith for us also by by saying faith is when we draw near to God by believing he exists and by believing he's going to do what he said he's going to do. So if you're ever looking for a helpful definition of faith, I think verse 6 actually is super helpful. What is faith? Faith is when you believe that you draw near to God because you believe that he exists and that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. It's kind of a helpful thing. Number three, we'll wrap up here. Let's look at Noah. Verse 7, by faith doing the daily. It means doing the daily. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, first thing I want you to see here, or that I think the, the author wants you to see, is that Noah's faith was not only in uh, salvation, Noah's faith was also in God's condemnation, wasn't it? Noah not only believed that God was going to save, Noah also believed that God was going to judge. And being a Christian means we believe both. Okay? Being a Christian means, yes, we believe God's a redeeming God. We believe God can save. We believe God does save. We also believe that God is a judging God, that God is holy, and that God will return. So Noah took God seriously. That's what he did. When God said, I'm going to judge the world, I'm going to cleanse the world, build a boat, Noah said, okay. He took God at his word. He said, I believe you. Okay, he was warned by God concerning events yet unseen in reverent fear because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Many people love to love the idea of God's love, but they forget that God's love isn't God's love if God is not just. Do you understand that? We can love the idea of God's love, but God's love is only love if he is a God of justice as well. Anyone who has ever been sinned against to a degree that makes you sick to your stomach, anyone's ever a child that was molested or somebody that was deeply hurt that you love very much understands the nature of, of love demanding justice. So we need to take God seriously, not only the fact that he loves to save, but the fact that he also is a God who will judge and he has to put sin and death to death forever in order to fix the problem of this world that we live in. What faith, or uh, pardon me, what Noah is for us is he's the ultimate parable of chapter 11, verse 1. We studied last week, which said this Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. There should be a straight line there from that verse to Noah, because Noah is the perfect example of that. He's the perfect example. He, he said, Okay, God, I haven't seen this yet. I haven't, this hasn't happened yet. This is purely just your words breaking into my story, and I'm going to let your words have more weight than the words of the culture. I'm going to let your words move me to action. I'm going to let your words shape my behavior, shape my decisions. That's what a life of faith looks like. And what we need to see here about Noah is that Noah did a lot of stuff for the Lord, and that's okay. Okay, if, if Abel and Enoch were kind of more focused on what they didn't do, it's very, very good to spend an entire life working for the Lord. But I need you to understand something about the nature of Noah's life because it would be very easy to romanticize Noah's life Okay, uh, to see and focus only on the part of the story where the, the floods come and where Noah is saved and, and he feels like the hero and everything is good. Okay, but Noah is not only a parable of working for God, Noah is a parable of the monotony and redundancy and daily difficulty of living a long life of faith and faithfulness. Noah was an old dude. Noah spent a lot of years building that boat. Okay, and for him... When he thought about the boat, he didn't think, oh, that was a really cool couple of weeks where everything happened in the water. No, he was thinking, there's millions of slivers, thousands of nails, hundreds of boards. I mean, he saw and would have thought about the day after day after day after day monotony of trusting God. You know, faithfulness to God doesn't look like one big decision once that you make in a nice 4K romanticized moment with music and pads in the background where everything's really cool. And you just say, yes, God, like all the Christian movies we all watch, you know, where like everything's just perfect and it's really exciting and this person says yes to God and that's their faith moment. When does that ever happen? I'll tell you what faith looks like. Faith looks like getting up every day and choosing to do what feels unnatural because the entire world and your entire flesh and the devil is telling you it's the opposite. Faith looks like Noah getting up every day and pounding nails. It looks like the monotony and the consistency of millions and millions of micro decisions to trust God in the small things. That's a lot harder. It's like marriage, right? It's, like, it's so much easier to say I do at the altar than it is to actually invest in your marriage for 50 years. It's so much easier. But the life of faith for most of us is not Enoch where God says, hey, come on up. Or Abel where our life ends short. For most of us, our life resembles Noah. It's going to be year after year after year of faithfulness. Choosing to get up and say, God, I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to trust you because that's what you called me to do. Let me give you some advice, okay? Uh, obedience is found, or uh, pardon me, focus on the small obedience things 
Okay, when you think about what do I need to do for God, think about what are the small things that I should be doing for God, but keep your focus on the big scale things. Keep your focus on the size of God, the glory of God, and keep your heart satisfied in worship. So let's back up from this three minutes. Let me just put this all together, step back from these four, these, these, these four verses, and let me ask some questions. Uh, let me make two observations, rather. Two observations from this text regarding faith. And you can write them down. Number one, I want you to see this. The substance of saving faith lives and thrives in a variety of environments. The substance of saving faith lives and thrives in a variety of environments. As we step back from our text and we think about these three profiles of faith, these three faith racers, what are we supposed to see? I want you to see the diversity of each race that each of these person, uh, persons ran. Abel lived in a very different time than Noah. Abel lived in a time of early innocence where murder hadn't even happened yet. He was the first, right? Uh, Noah lived in a time of total wickedness. Very different lives, very different contexts. Noah lived a really long life. Abel and Enoch lived a much shorter life. They each had varying levels of revelation, meaning God revealed more to one than the other, yet each showed faith in Unison. They, they all ultimately showed faith. Now, what's my point? My point is simply this. We need to be careful to not impose the race that we are running on those that are running next to us. I think I have time for a funny story. I did a marathon uh, a few years ago, and there was this, this short uh, little lady who um, was running also. Okay, It was the Eugene Marathon, so it was like 3,000 people, but as, as you get closer to the 26 mile, it kind of thins out. And she was driving me crazy because I was running my pace, you know, um, and, and I'm just locked in on my pace. And her strategy was so annoying. She'd blast past me and disappear. And then like 40 seconds later, she'd be walking and I'd pass her. And then she'd blast past me again. And, and I'm like, what is this? I mean, it must have happened like 30 times. I'm like, I'm so tired of passing this lady, right? This, this, and you know what's really sad? She beat me. Yeah, 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 there it is. She beat me, she beat me. Okay, what's my point? My point is, there's more than one way to run a race, okay? There's more than one way to run a race. There it is. Gah, I'm gonna try that next time. We need, we need to be careful not to impose our faith journey on others or assume that God cannot work in certain environments. Pastor Ryan pointed this out as a joke this week, and I kind of started thinking more about it. He, he was saying, it'd be funny if all three of these guys, Abel, Noah, Enoch, all started their own church, right? Like, they, they would all tell you that you needed to do entirely different things. And so I started thinking about that, riffing on that. Here's what those churches would be called. So if, uh, if you went to the church of Noah, you'd be called the church of the boat builders, you know, and you'd be like getting your coffee and your broista is like, hey, what are you doing? I'm going to church. What church are you? Oh, the church of the boat builders. Oh, I've seen you guys. You got the boats out front. Yeah, that's what we do, man. That's discipleship. We build boats because that's what God told Noah to do. So clearly that's what we're supposed to do, the church of the boat builders. And then the next person goes through the Dutch Brosian and, and, he, and, and he's like, where are you? I go to, I'm going to church. Oh, what church do you go to? Oh, it's Enoch's church. You remember that guy? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, 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 the convention of the caught up. People that got caught up, yeah, that's what we do. Like, we're just waiting. We're just like, uh, we're waiting for the rapture. You know, we're just waiting. Like, we're waiting for, the, well, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, and then there's Abel. Abel is the community of those killed by Cain. Would you love to go to his church? Hey, man, we're church hopping right now. Like, where do you go? I got a community of those killed by Cain. 
Yeah, except only one of us has actually been killed by Cain. And so we're all waiting. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of true, right? I mean, that's kind of what we do in church a little bit. You know, we take our experience with, we take, we take the, the pot we were planted in, we take the process we went through, we take the path that we took, how God used us, what our race was, and we go, hey, everybody needs to do this, Right? Instead of letting the diversity of the body be the diversity of the body and recognizing that we're all running in the wake of Christ's victory, but we're all running a little different. We all have different circumstances. We all have different things, different settings. We need to be careful. I I think one of the things we're supposed to see in this text is the diversity of the faith racers. They're all a little different. Second thing I want you to see, and we'll close. The action of faith is a connection to him, not a production of self. The action of faith is a connection to him, not a production of self. The, see this, the common denominator of all three of these individuals, Abel, Enoch, and Noah, was that none of them were producing out of their own strength. They were all responding to what God had already, the grace that God had already shown. And that's what faith is. You know, there's a, a difference between energy producing and energy responding. Let me give you a quick analogy. A car has wheels and a car has an engine. One of them is energy producing and one of them is energy responding. Okay, um, the engine is energy, energy producing. The gas, and I'm gonna show how stupid I am here. The gas falls into the pistons or whatever and creates little explosions, pushing the pistons. I'm looking over at Mike Lilly, he's a mechanic, right? Pistons, okay, and then there's like a drive shaft thing which, which turns the wheels. Now, trick question, what is driving the car? What's the, what's the power source? Is it the wheel or is it the engine? What's the wheel's job? What, how do you know if a wheel's doing a good job? It's connected to the engine. It's aligned. It's in line with the engine, okay? This is exactly what Jesus was trying to say when he said, you're a branch. He's saying, your job, faith, doesn't look like reaching within yourself and trying to find the trust and find the faith and, and, and having confidence in what you can do for God. No, he says, faith is just connecting yourself. Just connecting yourself to the power of Jesus Christ. That's what faith looks like. Sam, why does this matter? It matters because we live in a culture that is selling autonomy from God and a self-realized identity. It's saying that you, you can just be a stick on the ground and produce life. You just gotta look within yourself. No, no. You have to abide in the vine. So what do we do? We need to be careful of not calling people to just faith. What do we call people to? We call people to respond to the news of what has been done. We don't say, hey, you need to get out and run a faith race. We need to say, hey, Jesus ran the perfect race. You need to connect to him. You need to plug into him. You need to abide in him. That is the Christian life. That's what we're called to do. Now, you might be saying, Sam, how do we do that? I'm glad you asked. We're gonna figure that out in our circles, okay? Uh, Let me pray, and then I'll give you a little more information on that. Father, thank you so much for Hebrews Chapter 11, thank you for these three individuals that were accredited righteousness because they trusted you, not because of anything they did. Thank you, Lord, for these three individuals that are great examples of responding to the grace that you've shown in faith. I pray that we too, Lord, would run our faith race by responding to the grace that you've shown, by running in the wake of your victory, Jesus. You are the pioneer, you are the champion, you are the author, you are the finisher of faith. You're finishing our faith. You lived perfectly and you accredited that perfect life to us. That's such good news. 
And so, Lord, as we, as we spend a little bit of time as the church family this morning, God, would you invade our circles? Would you speak through us? Help us to encourage one another, make some new friends, and enjoy being the church this morning. In your name, amen.